0: Welcome to Most Popular, the podcast that remembers the days that square pizza was served as a nutritious school lunch option and can also explain why the nostalgia for those foods exists. Because if I ate it now, it would be so bad for my tummy. But back then, wasn't it delicious? I'm Dr. Adrian Trierbenek. I'm your host. And in case you are hearing this for the first time, I am a real-life real lady, college professor of sociology, and I created this podcast to combine my two loves, pop culture and the impact it has on our lives. Today we are talking about art and theater and education with Nick Bazo. Nick is a Cuban-American director, he's a professor, he's a teaching artist, and he's an arts administrator originally from South Florida. He has been an adjunct professor at University of Central Florida and University of Florida, and he currently works with the Orlando Shakespeare, with the Orlando Shakespeare Theater and the William Daniel Mills Theater Company. And most recently, the way that I found him was he was the director of education at the Garden Theater in Winter Garden, Florida. Nick and I are going to talk about the uh, connection that art has with education and how kind of inserting art into things that we do with kids for fun or to get them to express themselves. Or in this case, as you'll listen, we recorded this during the pandemic to express um, emotions, to heal from trauma, to find a way to kind of demonstrate what they're feeling or what they're thinking and how art can bring that out. And uh, in a lot of ways, this is one of the most pop culture of pop culture topics that we can talk about because, you know, there's this fusion of art and society that uh, underlines what happens when you use art in education or the arts in education, I should say. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation. So, Nick, welcome to Most Popular. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Thank you for having me. As a former theater kid, today is making my heart very happy. So... um, (laughs) Um, I just want to kind of talk about your accomplishments for a minute, because they are just fantastic. So you studied um, with the Tektronic Theater Project, who are known as the creators of the Laramie Project, which is one of my favorite plays of all time. Um, You had you were actually. Really? Of course, you studied there. Um, You were at the Double Mm Edge Theater, which am I right? It's kind of a feminist based theater that's on a farm in Massachusetts.
1: I, that that would be a label I, I could definitely get behind. <laughs> I say um a, a movement-based, but I say feminist, um uh, definitely feminist, um ideology permeates definitely in its work.
0: Um, you studied under Norma Bowles, who advocates theater for social justice. Um, I I, I know I'm going to say it wrong. Octavio Campos, um, who's a dancer who's a dancer and Michael Rode, who wrote the book theater for community conflict and dialogue, which I think back in my, um, early years of college, I'm fairly certain I read. So, um, lots of, uh, justice-based stuff happening with you. You're a former board member at the American Alliance for theater education, pride youth theater, and you received the Wesley V Montgomery Memorial mentorship and leadership initiative award from the national performance network, uh, I am very excited to talk to you. You are so accomplished. This is so great. <laughs> well, well,
1: thank you. I feel very humble. <laughs>
0: um, how did you get started in, in theater? How did you get started doing this? Um,
1: I can give you the, the very quick story. Um, I looked up to my older sister, um, who at the time was a dancer. She's about seven years old. than I mean, me, a dancer involved in like high school dance competition. Um, and she moved in with us, uh, when we lived in central Florida and she started doing community theater and, um, she was actually in in the production of the best little four house in Texas, um, (laughs) at, 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 um, the theater winter Haven, which is a community theater where nearby where my parents lived. And I followed her to rehearsal and I used to sit with her in rehearsal while she was, um, working on the show and, I was like, I wanna do that too. And I started taking um, theater classes and workshops at that same theater, started do- getting into plays, doing more performance in my um, middle school chorus, and then eventually um, auditioned to be in the local performing arts um, magnet school in Lakeland, Florida, Harrison School of the Performing Arts. And from there, I you know went to college Um, I took a little bit of break between undergrad and grad school just to give myself some space to see if this was the path I wanted to go on. Got my MFA in theater. And so, you know, I can honestly say I've been doing theater since I was about nine years old.
0: Wow. Um,
1: So I'm still a theater kid.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't know that you ever actually shake the label. I think it's pretty much there forever once you've felt it. Um, What was your what's the first show you really remember really loving?
1: Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, I think, I think West Side Story, um, probably resonated the most with me. Um, I think, I think cause I have such strong memories about the music. My dad was a, a band geek in high school mm. and he was always so proud that they played a lot of, um, Leonard Bernstein, um, Uh, And so West Side Story was, you know, always being played on uh, the vinyl record um, to date myself a little bit. (laughs) Uh, So um, I'd say West Side Story really, um, and the connection to, um, you know, I'm Cuban, but it is a a story about, you know, uh, Puerto Ricans living in New York City really resonated with me as a kid. And the music is still um, very powerful. I think the show itself, it might be a little bit uh, dated, but it's still the story still very much resonates to the world that we live in here in the United States.
0: Oh, for sure. And Rita Moreno, I mean, how can oh, you not? Oh, and Rita Moreno, absolutely. <laughs> I love One Day at a Time for her. Like I, I watch that show because I just, I just love her. Um. So, you got an MFA. What what made you decide, I think that sometimes, especially for students who are listening, the leap to going into a graduate program can be a little bit daunting. So what made you elect to do an MFA after taking some time off?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think it was twofold. I think um, part of me um, really has always considered um, teaching at the college level something that I um, would like to dabble in or be interested in dabbling, And I knew that in the theater and arts world at MFA is usually um, the route to go. Um, it, is the equivalent, it has the equivalency of um, a doctorate in, in the way that um, you can be a professor at a, mm-hmm. on the college level. So that was the, just the MFA aspect of that was obviously a, a draw. But particularly the program at UCF, which was theater-free young audiences, it was so unique Um, It was the only program I actually applied to, which is not what they tell you to do when you're (laughs) for grad school. They say, you know, put out uh, a lot of
0: um, Mm -hmm. dealers,
1: But I knew if I wanted to continue my education, this kind of program is what exactly I wanted to do. Um, And it was literally in my backyard, Um, Mm -hmm. uh, being, you know, living here in Orlando and having such a. close relationship with the Orlando Rep. The program was symbiotic with the Orlando Rep. And so I knew it was unique, and I wanted to do something that was really specialized. Um, And so that's what really drew me to the program.
0: So this is something you've wanted to do your entire life. That's what I'm taking away. Like For as long as you can remember, theater has been, yeah, your thing. And now you're living it. Um, So am I correct you're the first education director for the Garden Theater?
1: Yes, I'd say there's um, there have been folks who filled um, aspects of the role, um, but I'm the first full-time um, director of education with particularly that title and, um, and the responsibilities that kind of go with it. So there's definitely been folks, great folks who over the years have um, been doing a lot of the work that I do now, mm-hmm. but I am the first uh, full-time person dedicated uh, to this role.
0: What does that role look like for you?
1: Good question. (laughs) I am currently figuring that out. Um, So I think, uh, you know, I'm coming into this role. I started this in March, in the middle of a global pandemic, moving back here from Boston. Um, So part of it is uh, right now, learning how to do in-person programming in the midst of the world that we're living in right now. Um, So I'm kind of um, building the structure as I'm running it. Um, I I mean, and I would say that a lot of great things were already in place. The summer programming was already scheduled. Our teaching and our staff were already in place for me to kind of hit the ground running with that. Um, So a lot of my work currently is um, thinking about uh, how we're doing this safely, um, but also doing it to the high standards that has been built over the last uh, couple of years. Now, moving forward, um, we're restructuring our, um, our staffing a little bit to that I have a closer connection now to our artistic director, Joe Walsh, um, and that the education department will be fall, fall, it's part of the artistic um, department and, and production department. So my work is to be figuring out how programming in the future kind of better aligns with our main stage um, offerings. Um, which in the past not necessarily, um, they, mm-hmm. they kind of were in their own separate worlds. Um, and so part of my restructuring of and looking at programming is how, how are we doing education programming that um, builds off of and complements um, our main stage work, uh, but also engages community in a new way. So I am in the midst of running a program that's set and also build new, new programming at the same time. Um, what kind Which, of believe or not is not believe it or not? It's not rare for an education director to do.
0: Oh no, I totally believe. It. I totally believe it. I think you probably wear several more hats than than you realize or that anyone realizes. Um, what what kind of education do you all offer? Just in case anyone's wondering.
1: Yeah, right now it's um, it's a very it's very geared towards um, young people and youth, um, and our sweet spot right now is tend to be our 3rd to 6th graders, um, uh, just in that like tween to almost um, middle school age range. So it skews quite young. Um, a lot of it is production-based or um, skill-building based on a theme. Um, a lot of the, the themes come from the pop culture, movies, literature, um, Harry Potter, um, Disney, um yeah a lot of uh, a lot of the programming that young people are per maybe familiar with So maybe it they took, they took right they take right now the shape of um, like summer camps, so we right now we're running a summer camp. so if you've ever been to any kind of summer camp, it has a very similar. <laughs> structure.
0: Uh, why do you think this is important for kids to have something like this in their community because that's a that's a pretty significant development time that you're talking about.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the arts. Uh, you know, I, I always say like there's a couple reasons, but I like to go to the more crunchy granola uh, answer where you know humanity. The arts have been part of humanity since the beginning of time. Um, the, the, when humans learned to speak to each other, uh, they began to speak to each other using artistic means, whether through dance or art, and uh, and eventually, you know, theater. Um, or performative elements. And so as a way of communicating with each other and telling stories, it is literally in our DNA. Um, So tapping into young people um, and catching them at a young age where they're not filtered out by what the world says is or is not the right way to communicate or the right or wrong way to express themselves, we have a chance to um, to really build that kind of expression um, into their lives and to into their being at a very young age, which can be um, impactful for the rest of their lives. Now, I'll say this from a standpoint as an arts administrator, if you ever want to continue the art form, you need to build future artists, future patrons, future lovers of the art um, so that one day this this, this they are the ones who are coming to see shows. They're the ones that are support supporting the arts because they remember that experience as a young child um, coming to a theater class or coming to see a play. Um, and that's, that's impactful. It's also, you know, thinking of like how it ties into other academics. You know, it is, there's a million studies about how arts education is integral into um, creating stronger learners um, and and stronger students in all other um, fields of, um, you know, English and um, writing um, and, you know, in in math and science. It's all connected. And um, really, you know, the arts are a way of building creative thinkers and problem solvers. And often you have to have creative thinkers, and problem solvers to attack things like mathematical equations or, um, or you know, developing new technology, um, you know, those are, they go hand in hand. And catching young people at an early age is really important to kind of building that uh, for later in life.
0: I would also venture a guest. So my, um, my dissertation research, I looked at how women use music to heal after they've experienced trauma. And I studied um, women who, if you know Tori Amos, if you know her music, I studied um, women who are fans of hers. And I'm guessing that a lot of the themes I discovered are kind of translating to what you're talking about. Because especially doing this during a pandemic, doing art um, education during this moment of 2020 and how just upended everything feels, not just because of the pandemic, but things that are happening politically and things that are happening with racial justice, that you're sort of giving them this tool of an outlet, of a way to express themselves and how they're feeling and to maybe name their emotions um, in ways that maybe they didn't know was available for them before. And that for me, that's sort of what community art can do. Am I reaching for kids? Is that Am I going too That's, far off base?
1: Uh, I would, ag- No, I would agree <laughs> with that a thousand percent. I mean, I think we're seeing young people come in. You know, one of the things we did in the first, before our first week, is I talked to the teaching artist about, you know, there, there might be young people who this, this last couple months, this has been a traumatic experience.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: you're going to see that trauma manifest itself in subtle Ways that you know you might not be able to name, but are are going to be there. And it might not be acting out. It might not be you know crying in the corner. Mm -hmm. But it might be the way they talk about what's going on. It might be the stories they decide to tell. um, You know whether it's you know something as traumatic as losing a family member or being cooped up um, for a couple months. They're going to express themselves. in, in their art and what they're creating um, in and it's going to manifest itself and you will see this. Um, and this is, like you said, provides an outlet for expression in a positive, constructive, supportive way um, without necessarily, we're not, you know, I always try to make a fine line that we are not drama therapists, which mm-hmm. is a very specific genre or specific um, tool for or therapy but theater is therapeutic mm-hmm. um and that's just an, an innate feature of the arts and so i think you are you you know tap the nail on Ted in saying that you know our work and work of arts education is beyond education is, is providing those outlets for self-expression and and dealing with those dealing with those anxieties dealing with those um pressures that maybe the outside world is um not giving us other outlets
0: to express in So um, one of the things I noticed when reading about you is that there's kind of a theme of the stuff you've done uh, in your training and in your education that's a little more justice-based than... Um, I-, I think you lean toward that. It, does that feel close to... You, to... A thousand percent. Okay. <laughs> okay. Just making sure before I carry on. Um, so you've worked yes. a lot with um, LGBTQ+, uh, youth, what drew you to that?
1: Um, you know, I there's a lot that drew me to that, but I'll say it's honestly a very personal um, story. Uh, when I came out and I was 18 years old, my mother didn't take it well. Um, she, you know, fundamentally kicked me out of the house, mm-hmm. although I never, you know, fully, my, you know, I had to support a supportive father as well, so I never fully left the house but that she said that I was dead to her mm. um, and that was really painful and hard and we didn't speak to each other about that um, for a really long time and then I did a series of plays in college uh, one where I played a um, at, at Rollins College where I played a um, uh, a gay character who who um it was kind of a science fiction piece where they found out that their um they could change their genetic code of their baby to make them not homosexual. Mm. Um and so there was this whole discussion between the character and their parents about would have you would you have changed me if you could have done that. And I think it sparked a conversation where my mom started to open up about how she felt and how hurtful that she felt that that was for me um, and then I directed the Laramie project which is why I mentioned it was one of my favorite plays mm-hmm. the first time I had directed a full piece um, and so what I learned from this was that art I couldn't communicate with my mom face-to-face talking but the theater that I was creating opened up the door for communication for the first time since that moment I came out to her I felt like I could communicate with her. And so that was so powerful to me that I knew that I wanted to create those opportunities for young people to be able to talk to others um, that they maybe they felt they couldn't speak to. Um, and, that, that way, and that can be anything from an individual conversation with a parent like mine or conversations with our community because we're too scared to talk and stand up and my form of activism doesn't look like um, going to speak at a city council meeting. My my form of activism is inviting that city council to a play that highlights my experience because I believe that kind of um, empathetic uh, um, experience is even more powerful to get the conversation started than even just general conversation. So that's why I've done this work and continue to do this work. But I think it's, I think it's an even more powerful tool to change our world.
0: Wow. So in a way you're, you're giving that to kids. You're giving them that option.
1: Yeah. And I think, and the thing is, is like, I give them the up, op- the option is the right is, is right. I think part of my, my work and um, my work in Boston really was about that the power of youth voice is extremely important, mm-hmm. um, and that their their ability to make decisions for themselves and how they want to tell their story, um, and that I'm there to provide provide the outlet, and provide the resources, to provide the the, the funding, um, and I can help. Build the ship, but I am not the captain of the ship. Um, I think that youth empowerment is how we build stronger young people, which in turn builds stronger members of society. And I believe that 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 will be ingrained in my work, um, you know, as long as I continue doing this.
0: So my students who are in my social problems class um, watch the Laramie Project, uh, but for people who aren't familiar with what it is, can you kind of briefly explain what it is and how it came to be.
1: Yeah, so it is a, um, what we call a docu-theater um, devised um, uh, piece about the murder and the aftermath of the murder of Matthew Shepard, who was a gay young man in Laramie, Wyoming, who was um, uh, basically killed um, and left to die, or he left to die, mm-hmm. nothing left to die, um, in the Um, the wilderness of um, Wyoming and the Tectonic theater project was, which was a group out of New York city came to Laramie, Wyoming, and did a series of hundreds of interviews with local uh, people in the town. um, And basically, basically created a play based on those interviews. Um, So that's why we call it docu theater, because the, the, the words that are being, spoken in the play were the actual words of, um, the people that they interviewed. Um, and so it became, you know, life, real life on, put on stage. Um, and it's become now one of the most produced, uh, plays in, in this country because of the power of it. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was, you know, I came out, out with my Matthew Shepard, if I'm, if I'm getting my dates right. Um, was killed in uh, September of 1990 or October of 1998. I came out in August of 1998. Uh, I was 18, he was 21. So, and uh, right after that experience of my mom, um, it was, you know, so uh, coming out and having this national moment of a young uh, gay man being murdered for being who he is, had an emotional impact on me. And then fast forward, I think it was, you know, three or four years later where the play came out. Um, and Rollins actually, the play, I don't know how we got the rights to it. We were the first in Florida to be able to produce it, um, which I got the manuscript and it was literally a word document there was no binding, there was no <laughs> character breakdown, nothing. I had to do everything. Um, and so that, that, that piece of work, you know, set me on a path um, to do to continue to this work
0: the Laramie project to me um, is an example of activism at its best but also I mean you know we're talking about something that happened we're the same age so I was 18 when when Matthew Shepard was murdered and I still remember you know pretty much everything I did or what I was doing when it happened because it was that impactful on people and so then for the People to go and interview those folks and find out what was happening in that community, and I mean, they took the good, the bad, and the ugly. The play really shows, you know, all sorts of sides of how folks felt about it, and then to produce mm-hmm. this piece of art that really encapsulates encapsulates the trauma and the hurt that people were going through um, shows. I don't know. It for me, it it shows just how. Good theater can be and how it can really hone in on how you feel, and even when you were saying you know with West Side stories, there's problematic parts of it now, yes, but um the people like Rita Moreno coming out of that shows what great art can do um or well, she was part of tons of stuff before that I shouldn't say that was like her thing, but uh I don't that that's to me is is what is important about art um i've I have two more questions uh yeah. So I think this is actually pretty relevant considering what we were just talking about. But um, do you see a relationship between uh, the art that we consume, the media we consume, and people's changing attitudes? So I talked to um, one of my friends who uh, does hip-hop, and he's also a scholar, an anthropologist. And he is working on an audio—he's he's got a name for it. I think it's like an audio history— of um, songs that have addressed police brutality from, like, 1980 um, into the mid-90s. And it kind of shows, like, like it predicts, basically, what we're going through right now. Like, if there was a prediction, like, if there was a crystal ball and you could predict Mm -hmm. this music from the 80s and 90s basically laid out what is happening right now. So there's a lot of talk in music about how me- songs are rallying people's ad- attitudes and making people more active in politics. Um, Hamilton's a good example, bringing people more closer to history. So do you see a connection between people's changing attitudes in art? Do you think that it can benefit how people kind of change their minds or the way they think?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, and I, I will put the, say the, I think you've nailed it on the head also about you, someone predicting these kind of things. I, I think, you know, the story of Matthew Shepard resonated at that time because a lot of, honestly, white parents saw their child mm-hmm. in Matthew Shepard. But, you know, we've known for many decades of thinking about the, the many gay men who died within the AIDS crisis in the 1980s whose stories are lost Mm-hmm. or um are not told and particularly you know uh people of color who's who have been murdered mm-hmm. um especially black and uh black trans women who've been murdered and continue to be murdered um you know in this country those stories you know uh, need to be told um are being told and are being told within those communities um and but it, it is is a true fact that sometimes the we don't, we don't listen until we see ourselves and, you know, and, and as unfortunate as that is, that is, that is the reality. So there is definitely a reflection. I mean, I could say right now will and grace help my parents be better supportive of me.
0: <laughs> you know, <laughs> really?
1: um, they, they, I would, I would say that, and you know, I, uh, um, not to get too political, but um, I think uh, Joe Biden made that connection once uh, saying that, like, I think, I think he, I, to, that Will and Grace did more for, you know, making gay marriage palatable mm-hmm. to the American public than anything else, uh, because people could see, were exposed to this, these stories, um, could see friends, family members, and, you know, that's honestly, unfortunately, how we change hearts and minds was when we feel a direct connection to these stories and these characters, and so that's where art really can be powerful in these moments, Um, I think it can unlift, uplift stories that need to be uplifted, but also um, can make connections to then change hearts and minds. And I think I did that really with the work I was doing, True Colors, where the young people were creating this art about their personal lives, and they were going out to schools and community groups and social workers and telling their stories, and people were starting to connect the dots. Hmm. um and it takes time with some folks, and it takes and some folks you're just never going to reach and we always we always talk in the in the in you know in activism work there's the people who are already on your side, there's the people who are never going to be on your side, and then there's the movable middle, and it is the movable middle that you get enough of mm-hmm. of of a of a surge of and then that's how you how you continue to build
0: movements um Nick, I could talk to you all day. About all of this, <laughs> I can talk all day. And <laughs> and
1: my father's talking. <laughs> um,
0: I'm going to ask you uh, the question I ask everybody, and um, which is, who or what do you think should be voted most popular?
1: Huh So, this one's a really hard one. I think um, I think my go-to would normally be Michelle Obama. <laughs> um, and I think that's, I, Same. I feel like sometimes I could be a, uh, not a cop, but like <laughs> I think of, um, someone who took on, you know, the ambitions of her husband, um, and in so many ways protected her family and was a role model for so many people in this country, um, that I think she, in so many ways, had a harder job than um, President Obama in that she was trying to be a leader in this nation, but also a mother um, and a wife. Um, and so I just recently watched her Netflix special that came out about her story. And it, you know, to, to be so honest and to be willing to, to give herself um, for this, for this, country. Um, And I would say, you know, there's a lot of first ladies, I I could say that too, but like the added the added pressure of and the scourge of racism that Mm
0: -hmm.
1: was add on to this and she did it with style and grace um, without you know, thinking low is inspiring.
0: My friend and I were just saying the other day that, you know, Michelle Obama says when they go low, we go high. And yet right now all I really want to do is go low and I must push against that (laughs) So high.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's tough. And I think, yeah. you know, I think we, when we, when you come out at the end of the day, you want to come out of this and say, I'm proud of the work, mm-hmm. you know, I did. And that's, that's not always easy to do. You want, you want to, you want to get in and get ugly. Um, <laughs> and it, and sometimes being ugly is the, is the high ground right there. So I, I I'm, I'm, I I hope she, I honestly hope she never goes into politics um, herself because I think she's done more, can do more um, with her platform than, than, than being a a politician.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you so much for doing this, Nick. Everyone, if you're interested in the Garden Theater, you can check out the website, which is just gardentheater.org. You can also link to Nick through that. I'm going to link on the, the most popular website to some of the stuff we talked about, the Tektronic Theater Project, the Laramie Project, Winter Garden Theater. Um, all of that will be on there. You can find me at www.mostpopularpod.com. It's www.mostpopularpod.com. And you can also find me on Instagram at popular. Um, thanks, Nick. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of Most Popular on iTunes and SoundCloud. More information, including additional resources for educators, can be found on my website, adriantrier benickcom and the website is listed in episode notes, so you don't have to figure out how to spell my name. <laughs> I am on Instagram at at dr tb that's at dr.adriantb. as always thank you so so much to all of my students for the encouragement to keep making these episodes and i will see you all again